Good morning, everyone. It's my first time preaching here today. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to share God's word with you all. Before we begin, let us first come to God in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you will help us to understand today's passage and to see how relevant and important they are for our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today, we are going to continue with the series of Nahum. So please turn your Bible to chapter 2 with me. Please also take a look at the sermon outline given in the order service today. I think the sermon outline will make it easier for you all to follow the sermon. And for those who weren't here last week, here's a quick recap about the background and the first chapter of Nahum. The book of Nahum is actually a sequel to the book of Jonah. Previously, God has sent Jonah to preach repentance to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. Nineveh repented at the time of Jonah. However, their repentance was short-lived. So about 100 years later, God sent the prophet Nahum to proclaim judgment against Nineveh. And Andrew has given us a detailed breakdown last week to show us this book was written roughly between the year 663 to 612 BC. And that means this book was written after the northern kingdom of Israel fell into the hands of Assyria. Chapter 1 begins by describing the attributes of God and it shows us that God is a jealous and wrathful God who will by no means clear the guilty and he will take vengeance against his enemies. None of his enemies can ever withstand his anger and endure his wrath. Nineveh, who is God's enemy here, they have plotted against him by oppressing his people Israel. And God promised to liberate Israel from the yoke and bondage of Nineveh. When this liberation happens, it will be good news and there will be peace for Israel. Never again will the wicked and worthless trouble them. Before we continue, I would like to first point out some struggles some of us here might be experiencing with this text. Some of us here might probably feel that the text here is not relevant and it can be quite boring. Yes, I do understand that and I have been there before. At least chapter 1 seems more relatable to our life at first glance because we can see that there is a more positive aspect of God's comfort to his people. But when it comes to chapter 2, this chapter seems to be a lot more judgmental, it's a lot more harsh, and it will be even more so in chapter 3. So some of us here might be thinking, why bother reading this passage or this book? After all, the God of the New Testament seems to be much more gracious and friendlier, whereas the God of the Old Testament seems to be much more judgmental and has some anger management issues. But you know what? The God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. We worship the same God who is the same yesterday, today and forever. A God who is unchangeable. And let me assure you, dear friends, if we take the time to be more intentional with this text, we will then begin to see how powerful this message can be for our Christian growth. This text will help us to understand the heart of God at a deeper level 
especially with regard to the attributes of his wrath and judgment which can be quite uncomfortable for some of us here. It will challenge us to examine ourselves, whether do we actually know this side of God. It will also shape our worldview on how to interpret this world better by helping us to see and understand what God is doing throughout the history of mankind. Now, as we come to chapter 2, the prophet Nahum cried out in verse 1 that the scatterer has come up against you. God is against you, O Nineveh, so you better mend the ramparts, wash the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. If you notice at the ESV footnotes, it says, Gird your loins, which is translated rightly as, Dress for battle, get yourself ready. Well, it's not that Nahum was actually worried for the well-being of Nineveh and wanting them to do all they can to defend themselves from God. After all, they are his enemies too. What Nahum is doing here is actually taunting them and mocking them with sarcasm, as if they actually stand a chance against the Almighty God. Nahum wants to provoke the Ninevites to try their best so that it will be more humiliating for them to be defeated in this way as compared to never trying their best. So why has the scatterer come up against them? The answer is found in verse 2. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The Assyrians have not only enriched themselves by plundering the northern kingdom of Israel, but they have also ruined their branches, which means they have destroyed the northern kingdom. From 2 Kings chapter 17, we know that if there are any of the remaining survivors in Israel, they will be taken into exile. Now, if we think about words too carefully, we might ask the question, why can't God just restore Israel without destroying Nineveh? Why must they come together as a package, like two sides of the same coin? Well, friends, that is because to liberate Israel from their enemies, their enemies must first be defeated. Secondly, this is consistent with God's character seen in chapter 1. God is a God of vengeance, and He is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Even though God used the sinfulness and wickedness of the Assyrians to chastise Israel as seen in chapter 1 verses 12 to 13, they are still guilty of their own sins and cruelty. They are still guilty of plundering and oppressing Israel to enrich themselves. They have served God's purpose to chastise Israel and now the time has come for them to be punished by God. It's just like the message of the gospel, you know. As a holy and righteous God. God cannot just simply let sinners go free and give them eternal life. Sin must be punished. And that's why He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be punished on behalf of sinners on the cross. That is why we can be set free from condemnation and we put our trust in Jesus. What we see in verse 2 is consistent with God's character. And verse 2 is the reason why God has come to scatter the Assyrians to destruction. To carry out his judgment against them, God sent the combined forces of Medes and Babylonian armies as his instrument against Nineveh in August 612 BC. Looking at verse 3, the shield of his mighty man is red, his soldiers are clothed in scarlet, 
The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The mighty soldiers of the commanders, they are clothed in scarlet red. This is a brilliant military strategy, employed to strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. Mighty soldiers are coming together with nearly indestructible chariots, reinforced with matters. They are flashing brightly under the light of the sun. Their spears are made of cypress, which is one of the strongest wood, made of the highest quality. They are brandishing their spears, waving them, showing how eager and ready they are to attack the city. And thus they charge toward the city as wise stated in verse 4. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. They are just so fast, like the movement of light gleaming through from the torches. They quickly dash like lightning through the streets, through the squares, all the streets, the squares, the residential areas, the suburbs outside the city have fallen into their hands. But that's not it. There are more to come. They continue to advance toward the city wall in verse 5. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. They are ready to take the wall. And then the city. The word remember here can also be translated as command, which I think is a better translation. So the commander commands his officers to charge toward the wall, but somehow they stumble as they charge forward, not because of their weakness, but because they have slain too many people outside the city walls. There are too many corpses lying on the ground as obstacles causing them to stumble making it more difficult to get past through these corpses. But once they pass through them, they have gotten to the city walls. They begin setting up the siege tower, ready to smash the fortification of the wall. Here is a picture to give you an idea of what they look like. They are basically movable towers, covering the soldiers and the siege machinery in them, so that they can be protected and they can smash the wall. To further guarantee their success, they proceeded to open the river gates. Now to understand this better, let me show you another picture. This picture here is a map of the city of Nineveh. You can see that this city is surrounded by river channels and the Corset River is passing through the city. During raining season, it's common for the rivers to be over flooded and the waters will overflow to the surface which will cause structural damage to the palace and other buildings. To solve this issue, one of the kings, King Sennacherib, built a water dam outside the city to control the water flow of the river. And this time their enemies used their water reservoir to their advantage. Because they managed to overcome the defenses outside the city, they are able to now seize this water dam to open the river gates. That's why verse 6 mentions, the river gates are open, the palace melts away. All the waters from the reservoir will flood the entire city, eroding away the palace and washing away their defenses. Verse 7 says its mistress is stripped, she is carried off. But I think it is better if we translate the word mistress as dissolves in connection with verse 6. So verse 6 will be read as the palace melts away and dissolves, 
In verse 7, you'll be read as, She is stripped, she is carried off. With the flood waters from the water dam and the siege tower bringing down the city defense system, their enemies now march into the city. And if there are any survivors, they'll be carried into exile. Her slave girls will lament. They'll be moaning and beating their breasts. It will be a tragic and sorrowful event for them. Their hearts will be pierced with many grievances. As we come to verse 8, Though Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away, the pool of water here symbolizes the glory of Nineveh. She was living in glory and in prosperity throughout her days. But this time, their soldiers and inhabitants are fleeing from the battle. Nineveh was no longer the glorious kingdom we once knew. Her glory has now come to an end. And the Babylonian warriors cry out in verse 8, Hot! Hot! Stop running away! Stay right where you are! Don't you run away from me! Come and fight me like a man, like a warrior. Where's your honor and your pride? Aren't you the strongest kingdom? Why are you running away now? But none of the Ninevites turn back to face their enemies. They have lost the battle. Their city is a lost cause. So the next thing for the invaders to do is to plunder the city as mentioned in verse 9. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. All the wealth that the Assyrians have accumulated over hundreds of years from their military campaigns and tributes has now fallen into the hands of their enemies. There is just so much treasure and there is no end to them. All this wealth is an irrefutable proof of their sins. Because the Assyrians have soiled and dirtied their hands with their wickedness and they have shed uncountable innocent blood to get this much wealth. The calamity they face in this judgment is what they truly deserve for all the blood they have shed. They are guilty as charged by the prophet Nahum. Let this be a warning to us, dear friends, to beware of greed. Many people today have justified their sins by saying, no choice lah, how to survive with so little money. Because of that, they dirty their hands and their conscience to backstab their colleagues at work for their promotion, for their increment, for their commission, or they abuse their employees, their juniors, or cheat in their business dealings just to get more money or more power like the Assyrians. But you know what? God is watching us. In the eyes of God, it's better to be poor than to oppress or cheat others. So let's not repeat the same evil as Nineveh. Continuing with where we left off just now, because of their sins, God will make Nineveh into a place of desolation and ruin. It wouldn't be pleasant for them. As per what verse 10 says, their hearts will melt, their knees will tremble, and they'll be filled with so much anguish. Their faces will grow pale, and they see how their mighty city has fallen. It be so traumatizing for them to the point that if there are any survivors, they might probably wish that they are dead instead of alive. Or they'll be so traumatized with PTSD after this incident for the rest of their lives. To what then shall we liken the tragic downfall of Nineveh? The prophet Nahum has likened it 
to be like a lion then in verse 11 to 12. From the surviving historical text of Assyria, scholars have found that the Assyrian kings were often presented as lions. Lion is a symbol for kingship in Assyria, which is why the prophet Nahum asked rhetorically in verse 11, Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, and the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? Assyria, the strongest empire in Mesopotamia, invincible and untouchable, which no kingdoms dare to mess with, somehow is described to be missing. Where have they gone? How can this be? For the original audience who heard the proclamation of the prophet Nahum that Nineveh will fall, this is unimaginable and unthinkable for them. For Assyria is described in verse 12 to be like, the lion, who tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, the prophet Nahum proclaimed this oracle when Assyria is still at its glorious peak and its prime. Assyria prowl and pray against other nations like a lion, cruelly tearing away her enemies. So it wouldn't be surprising if only a handful of people believe in the oracle of Nahum. Allow me to illustrate this. Say 20 years or 50 years ago, when America was at its pinnacle of glory, it was the strongest nation in the world. During that time, not even China or Russia stood a chance against America. If I told you at that time, America will fall and be wiped out and cease to exist, I doubt that you will believe in my words. And even if I tell you today, with China or Russia catching up, I still doubt that you will believe in me. And that, my friends, was what it looks like for Nahum in his time. Assyria is a superpower nation like America. Not many people will take the prophet Nahum seriously. But God guarantees his word in verse 13. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. God has said it, and God will do it. Every word that he has spoken through the prophet Nahum is guaranteed to happen. If God is for us, who can be against us? But if God is against someone, then what hope does that person have? Well, there's actually absolutely no hope. It's hopeless for Nineveh. God is against her. Notice the word verse 13, I am against you, is actually a repetition of verse 1. The scatterer has come up against you. It's a bookend showing us how serious God is against Nineveh. In verse 13, God will destroy all their military might by burning their chariots in smoke. God will use the sword of the Babylonian armies on the battlefield to cut off the young lions, which means to cut off their young and strong soldiers. God will also starve them to death by no longer allowing them to prey on other nations to enrich and strengthen themselves. No longer will the nations hear the oppressive threats, the unfair terms and conditions, the heavy taxation and tributes from the Envoys of Nineveh, the voice of their messengers. 
who have stricken many fears into the hearts of the other nations will no longer be hurt. Scary, isn't it? Chapter 1 portrays the almighty power of God. It is so powerful, so terrifying, because he has full control over nature at his fingertips. He rebukes the sea, the mountains quake before him, the clouds are dust of his feet, and his wrath is poured out like fire. But if that description of him in chapter 1 is too abstract for you to imagine and understand, this chapter will portray his judgment vividly and realistically. What he said that he will do in chapter 1 is how it will look like in chapter 2. So what's the big idea for us in this passage? The big idea is God will restore his people by destroying their enemies. God has promised in this passage to restore the full majesty of Israel by first bringing Nineveh to utter destruction. Indeed, while well, history has proven that Nineveh was brought to utter destruction by the promise of restoration for Israel, has not yet come to its fullest fulfillment. Because after Assyria, Israel will later fall into the hands of the Babylonians, the Persians, and eventually into the hands of the Roman Empire. But friends, that does not mean that God has forgotten his promise. Because the true restoration of the kingdom of Israel begins with God's promised Messiah. And this restoration has begun 2,000 years ago through the person of Jesus. He is the promised king, the promised Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. He came to redeem sinners and reconcile them to God by shedding his blood in our place on the cross as the Lamb of God. But death could not contain him. He is victorious over death because God has raised him on the third day. As Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 to 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, totally wiped away by his blood. And God declares us to be righteous, that we are now okay with him. That is why God can transfer us into his kingdom when we trust in Jesus. And this kingdom is the true Israelite kingdom, consisting of those who are circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. But do not be mistaken, brothers and sisters. This kingdom is not just a spiritual kingdom. Because when Jesus comes back again, this kingdom will be manifested visibly as a physical kingdom, where there will be no more sin, no more death, and no more enemies. And those who trust in Christ will be resurrected from the dead with immortal and glorious bodies. Isn't that great? No more sin and no more suffering, no more pain and no more evil. And if you think that God is less scary and less angry in the New Testament, think again, that's simply not true. The judgment that was poured out on Nineveh for their sins in today's passage foreshadows a greater judgment to come. To help us understand this book better, 
I would like to point out that in the redemptive history storyline of the Bible, together with Egypt and Babylon, the city of Nineveh symbolizes the, the idea of the ultimate evil forces against God's people. This is true, not only literally in the historical context of this book, but also symbolically throughout the entire human history. We can see this at first in the book of Exodus, where Israel was oppressed by Egypt. Then Israel will be oppressed by Assyria, which is what is happening in the context of this book. After that, Israel will be oppressed by Babylon. Because Nineveh plays the same role as Egypt and Babylon as the enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. Therefore, the judgment we see here in this passage is a foreshadowing of a greater judgment that is to come on the enemies of God as seen in the book of Revelation, symbolized in the name of Babylon. On that day of judgment, Jesus will be appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Those whose sins are not removed by his blood will drink his wrath, the wrath of the Lamb. They will be tormented with fire and suffer in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Previously, the prophet Jonah preached repentance to Nineveh. But that repentance was short-lived and it was too late for, the, for Nineveh to repent at the time of Nahum. So if you are not a believer, don't be like Nineveh. Come to Jesus now while you still can, before it's too late. When we die or when Jesus comes back again, it will be too late for repentance. Because when that happens, those who are outside of Christ will lament and beat their breasts in sorrow. They will be trembling with fear and anguish in their hearts before the Almighty God. The Assyrians couldn't hide from God's judgment and neither can we. It is a fearful and dreadful thing when the wrath of God is against us. But thanks be to God because we can be delivered from the wrath of God by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. But I know it's not easy for us to be thankful for the fact that we don't have to face God's wrath anymore, even though we already know the gospel. Because if something bad happens tomorrow, say for example, if our boss goes unfairly tomorrow or something terrible happens to our project and we have to start all over again or we suddenly get a very terrible sickness affecting our health, then we will start to doubt whether does God actually loves us. Maybe God is finding fault with us. But let this passage be a reminder to us, dear friends, that we were once God's enemies. And we deserve as much judgment and condemnation just like the Assyrians because of our sins. But God in His grace has already redeemed us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So when something bad happens to us, let it be an opportunity for us to pray, Dear God, even though I don't know why you let this unfortunate incident happen, and it is indeed very upsetting, but I thank you that I can still trust in you, knowing that you truly love me and you do care for me because no matter what happens, I can be assured of your love for me. Even though I can't see how this unfortunate event is connected to your love for me, but on the cross, I can see your love for me very clearly. 
and you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins, even when I was your enemy who don't deserve to be saved and only deserve your judgment. So just because something bad happens to us doesn't mean God doesn't love us. The fact that we were once his enemies like Assyria shows us how much God truly loves us and he redeemed us in Christ even when something bad in life happens to us. Dear friends, ultimately, our assurance of God's love for us should be grounded on the gospel that Christ has delivered us from the wrath of God and it should not be grounded on the changing circumstances of our lives. So do my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Continue to keep putting your trust in Jesus. We can rejoice in our salvation because we are no longer the enemies of God like Nineveh. When we are in Christ, we don't have to face the wrath of God like Nineveh on the day of judgment. In view of that, let's not be like Nineveh, busy chasing after power and money at the expense of God. Let us not put our trust and hope in our wealth or in politics or in Bitcoin, the stock market or the financial market of America and China. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. The kingdoms and nations of this world will always come and go. Like Israel in this passage, we are pilgrims awaiting the full manifestation of God's kingdom to come. This world is not our kingdom. Like Israel in this passage who face oppression from Nineveh, the church also faced persecution from the evil one continuously throughout the ages. Who knows, it might be illegal for us to be Christians tomorrow. Or maybe some of you here are already facing discrimination at your workplace or with your family members simply because you are a Christian. But our Lord Jesus has promised us that He is not against us. He is with us. For He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. We may lose the battle here on earth, but be rest assured that we have already won the war in Christ. That is because our victory is secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in closing, be patient with the trials and tribulations of this life. Because when Jesus comes back again, a reversal will take place. Just like how Nineveh will be brought low and Israel will be exalted. Likewise, the same will happen to us and those who oppose God's kingdom. How that looks like is portrayed in Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the day to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Therefore, let's continue to hold fast to the gospel and look forward to the day when God will fully restore his people by fully destroying their enemies through his wrath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your word, we get to see how you will bring restoration to your people by destroying their enemies. And indeed, we have this 
promise of restoration in Christ, even though we were once your enemies. So help us to hold us to this hope we have, despite the troubles and persecution we face as Christians on this earth, knowing that on the cross, Satan and his kingdom have been defeated and the victorious outcome is secure. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.